0: My name's Emily Jackson. I'm from the Law Department uh, at LSE, and I'm absolutely delighted to chair this public lecture, one of the first of the year, to be given by Anne Phillips, and hosted by the Government Department and the Gender Institute. Um, The event will be recorded, and we hope that the podcast uh, will be available online shortly. Um, Before I introduce Anne, just something about the running order. Uh, Anne's going to speak for about 50 minutes. Um, We'll then have some time for a Q&A, Um, but the whole thing will definitely be over before 8 o'clock, and there'll be a reception then. Um, I'm thrilled to introduce uh, Anne to give this public lecture. I'm sure she needs no introduction to many of you. Anne joined the LSE in 1999 as a professor of gender theory and was director of the Gender Institute here at the LSE until September 2004. As many of you know, she's a leading uh, figure in feminist political theory and has written on a whole range of issues, um, including democracy, representation, equality, multiculturalism and difference. I first encountered Anne's work myself long before I ever met her, when I was at the very beginning of my academic career and I read uh, a book of Anne's called Engendering Democracy, which I can highly recommend as um, one of the most exceptionally clear uh, and academically rigorous pieces of writing um, I've ever read. I was absolutely blown away by it. It won the American Political Science Association's Award for Best Book on Women and Politics in 1991, and that's one of many accolades Anne's received during her career. Um, Anne was elected a Fellow of the Rich Academy in 2003, and in 2008, She received a Special Recognition Award from the UK Political Studies Association for her contribution to the subject. Now, in recent years, Anne's written extensively on issues around gender and culture and offered, I think, one of the freshest and most interesting critical perspectives on what many have supposed to be an inevitable clash between multiculturalism and women's rights. More recently still, um, Anne has turned her attention to the limits of what we might be able to do with our bodies and uh, a book on this will be out shortly. Speaking completely selfishly, because this is an area of particular interest of mine, I'm absolutely thrilled that uh, one of our most lucid and original thinkers in political science is engaging with these complex and difficult debates. So, over to you, Anne. Thanks very much,
1: Thank you very much for that, Emily, and um uh, thank you all for coming. Is the the sound's all right? Yeah. Um, okay. Um, well, I want to um, start with with my comments with a T-shirt. Uh, I haven't actually got the T-shirt, but uh, just a sort of story about a T-shirt. This was something I, I came across in a short essay written by the political philosopher Hillel Steiner, uh, and he describes how he spotted several teenagers at his local supermarket wearing a t-shirt with the slogan, sell your body. Um, As it turned out, they were actually selling advertising space for a local newspaper. I can't quite see why why that particular slogan is a kind of useful one for selling advertising space. But in kind of commenting on this, Steiner notes approvingly that the right of self-ownership that he sees as implied in that slogan uh, is the basis for a number of what he regards as key rights Um, Including the right to sell our our bodies, as well, uh, he sort of stresses, as the right to refuse to do so. Now, I I don't personally uh, share uh, Steiner's delight in this slogan, but I think what what he describes is very much part of our everyday use of language. Uh, We very commonly talk about our bodies as if they belonged to us. and that kind of way of talking about our body sounds very much often as if we are claiming them as our property. Um, on the whole, I think, we don't, act, we don't normally mean this literally. Um, I mean, if you think about the, um, the teenager um, who kind of says, you know, it's my body and I'll do what I like with it, when she's claiming her right to pierce her navel, uh, she doesn't literally mean that she has the right to do whatever she can with her body, that she could kind of you know, cut it up into pieces and you know, sell it to the highest bidder. Or the woman who says, it's my body, when she's claiming the right to determine for herself whether or not to have an abortion. Uh, doesn't necessarily mean, though she may also um, uh, believe this, she doesn't necessarily mean that she has the right to sell her sexual services as a prostitute or her reproductive services as a surrogate mother. Or another example, the, the legal theorist uh, J.W. Harris um, uh, reports that his children uh, once had uh, a cassette tape, the kind of you know, cassette tape that you play in the car to keep the children amused on long journeys, which, uh, which included within it a jingle um, designed to warn young children against inappropriate touching. Um, and the jingle went like this, I won't try to sing it, Um, it went, uh, remember your body is your own private property, your body is nobody's body but your own. Now as Harris points out that kind of notion about your body being your own private property certainly wasn't intended to convey to the children uh, that they have the right to decide for themselves which sexual favours to accord to which adults, so you know, that wasn't what this notion of private property actually meant. So what I'm saying there is that We do very often employ the language of private property uh, to affirm bodily integrity and to claim personal rights, but we don't necessarily intend by that um, the kind of stronger notion of property that's that's involved in talking about my ownership of a car or a house or something that I uh, um, um, sort of... Uh, claiming the right to uh, buy and sell, rent out, and so on. And I suppose to put my message in this lecture at its very simplest, um, I'm, I basically want to say I think we should keep it that way. You know, bodily integrity, very much so, uh, but private property in the body, uh, I don't think. Now, reservations about claiming property in the body come historically from many sources, uh, religion being one obvious one. Uh, In one of uh, St. Paul's Letters to the Corinthians, uh, he tells them that their body is, quote, a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. Uh, And I imagine one can find parallel statements about bodies not really belonging to us in the uh, major writings of, of other religions. Uh, There are also, of course, many secular sources of resistance to the idea that we have property in our bodies. Um, From most Marxist perspectives, for example, thinking of yourself and your body in terms of ownership or property would seem the ultimate capitulation to capitalism, which having turned every other object for human use into a tradable commodity, now works to transform the very way that we relate to ourselves. Uh, Writing in the 1920s, for example, George Lukács took it as the final stage in self-alienation, the point where the commodity relation, to quote Lukács, stamps its imprint upon the whole consciousness of man. His qualities and abilities are no longer an organic part of his personality, they are things which he can own or dispose of, like the various objects of the external world. Feminism has provided a further, though, as will be clear from what I go on to say, uh, by no means united, uh, source of resistance also to the idea of thinking of the body as uh, as property. And I think a lot of that relates to what's been a long history of theorising within feminism uh, about the objectification of women, uh, about women being treated as if they were things, or as uh, Simone de Beauvoir once put it, being stabilised as objects. And that kind of concern about uh, the the objectification of women um, has featured extensively in work on prostitution, pornography, marriage, uh, the analysis of advertising, the beauty industry, film, and so on. In that work, the most most persistent complaint, perhaps, is that women are treated as objects for someone else's, that is, men's, uh, satisfaction. But there's often an associated argument, and and certainly uh, de Beauvoir uh, argued this, to the effect that, that women then come to see themselves in the same light, um, that we accept the, the designation as object and participate in thinking of ourselves in this way. Now, it's clear that any kind of feminism uh, is going to reject the idea of women or their bodies being the objects of someone else's property. In fact, you wouldn't have to be a feminist to reject that. you just have to be a perfectly normal human being. Um, <laughs> but I think that critique of objectification um, has also provided powerful reasons for not thinking of oneself in a relationship of ownership to this thing that is your body now I think given all those different sources of resistance to the idea of the of the body as property um, it 's not surprising that you know people generally feel uneasy um, about situations in which the body is treated as if it were the kind of thing that we can own, the kind of thing we can rent out, the kind of thing we can buy and sell. Uh, Commercial trade in body parts and products is widely condemned, and in most countries of the world today is illegal, uh, though exceptions are usually made uh, for the sale and purchase of sperm and blood, uh, and in some countries also of human eggs. You can't offer your spare kidney for sale Um, You're also not regarded as owning bits and pieces of your body that might be removed during an operation. Uh, Though there have been some recent shifts in this, the dominant convention in both US and UK law is still that you can't have property in the body. I mean, that's that's still the kind of the dominant legal convention. And I think broadly, I'd say that that sense of the body as not the sort of thing that one can own. I think broadly chimes in with what most people think most people feel I mean if you think of the unease that many people feel about prostitution for example this is partly about the dangers and harms associated with working in the sex trade Um, it's partly about the fact that men are overwhelmingly the clients while most prostitutes are women but I think it also reflects a kind of quite widely shared feeling that intimate access to the body is not the sort of thing that should be up for sale So, I suppose what I'm just pulling that together, you know, we don't, of course, think that other people should be able to dictate what we do with our bodies, and in that sense, we do very much regard them as our own. I mean, they're ours and they're not yours, right? Um, But most of us don't, I think, think of the body as ours in the sense of it being something that we can readily turn into a, a marketable commodity. Most people, I think, and I'll come back to sort of critical comment on my use of the most uh, in a minute, most, I think, adhere to some kind of what you might describe as body exceptionalism, some kind of notion that the body is in some way special, Um, that bodies shouldn't be treated in ways analogous to material resources, uh, either in reality with bits of the body uh, rented out or sold, or even in the kind of language that we use in order to refer to our bodies and our relationship to them. Uh, the legal theorist Margaret Radin argues that, quote, systematically conceiving of personal attributes as fungible objects, that is, as uh, you know, interchangeable with other persons or things, is threatening to personhood because it detaches from the person that which is integral to the person. And she warns, quote, that such a conception makes actual loss of the attribute easier to countenance. And there are obviously echoes of the kinds of things that George Lukash was saying in the 1920s in in that formulation. Um, So rather than delighting in uh, Hillel Steiner's T-shirt, we should perhaps shy away from an inappropriate way of talking about our relationship to our bodies and selves. (coughs) Now, in a lot of what I've said so far, I've talked about what many of us think or what most of us think Um, And I guess what what I've so far presented kind of seems to me a kind of very rough uh, general consensus, but it isn't, of course, entirely so. Um, If you examine contemporary positions on the body, as developed in literatures on prostitution, surrogacy, uh, the ownership of body parts, uh, markets in human organs, uh, you'll find, if anything, I think, a growing resistance to the idea of the body as special there 's been a noticeable shift, including and this is one of the things that I think most interests me in in, in what I want to talk about tonight there 's been a notable shift, including among those who would describe themselves as radical uh, and or feminist and i 'm just going to give you three examples to illustrate the, the kind of um, in a sense the complexities of the debates that, are, that sort of currently go on around whether it is such a good or a bad thing to think about your body as property. So first example, um, which goes back some time, uh, a number of feminists have argued that treating the body as special gets in the way of fair payment and equal protection for women who are working in the sex trade or as surrogate mothers. Uh, The stigma attached to prostitution, for example, makes it harder for sex workers, which would be the uh, preferred term in this argument, it makes it harder for them to conduct their trade openly, um, harder for them to organise trade unions, uh, harder for them to seek the protection of the police against violence and abuse. Uh, The sale of intimate bodily services, it's argued, is not so qualitatively different from the sale of other intimate services. And um, uh, Martha Nussbaum, uh, who's a philosopher who uh, argues this position, uh, cites the philosophy professor as someone who takes money for her intimate search for understanding of the world and herself and says well you know she's taking money for you know a kind of an intimate thing you know why is that so different uh, but also I mean perhaps rather more plausibly in my view people say it's not so different from the ways in which all of us must use our bodies in order to make a living I mean you can't, you can't do any, anything without you know bringing your body with it um, in this argument, treating the body or sex as if they were so qualitatively different simply reinforces the sexual taboos. And a more straightforward defence of commodification might actually increase women's power and enhance gender equality. So this is, a, I mean, this is an argument um, from within feminism and it's, it's an argument which, you know, which has kind of progressive intent. Or a second argument from within political theory uh, in a, a book called, Whose Body Is It Anyway?, uh, political theorist Cecile Farb, who used to work at LSE, uh, provides a bracing defense of the right to lease one's body and sell one's body parts, and she explicitly assimilates bodies and body parts to other <coughs> material resources, so we should think of our bodies and parts of our bodies as, you know, like other material resources. But the reason she does this is in order to develop an egalitarian case for the coercive transfer of our spare body parts uh, to those in greater need of them. So basically, her argument is that if you accept it as a principle of justice, that those who lack the necessary means to a flourishing life are entitled to some redistribution of of money resources from those uh, who are more favoured, right?, which is a position that you know anyone with half a commitment to equality would agree to—that you know that if you know if some people have lots of money resources and others have very little, you know there's there's a strong egalitarian case for a redistribution of some of those uh, money resources from the wealthier to the poorer. If you accept that, then assuming that the operations can be performed uh, without danger. She argues, you can't consistently refuse to consider the same kind of redistribution from someone who has two good working kidneys, and we only need one of them, uh, to somebody who has none. Um, so basically, she's, uh, she's making a kind of an argument which has very much uh, equality at its core. Um, when people object to extending principles of justice in this way, she says, uh, it's normally on the grounds that the body is different. Um, that somehow the body is intimately bound up with personhood um, and that parts of the body should not therefore be treated as if they were resources or goods. But while it's true, she argues, that we would no longer exist as persons if we lost all of our body, uh, we can lose a limb uh, or have a kidney transplant and still be very much the same person. There's no reason, she argues, why we can't distance ourselves from the parts of our body and talk about them as if they're not parts of ourselves We can therefore think of spare body parts, parts of our body that we don't need in order to live a flourishing life, uh, as on a parallel with our excess income, the extra income that we don't need in order to live a flourishing life. And like that excess income, those spare body parts should be available to transfer to those in greater need. A third example... um, a number of critics have noted that the current legal conventions about you, know, you not having any property in your body work to the advantage of the biotechnology industry. And there's a very famous case that's always cited in discussion of this, which is the case of Moore versus the Regents of the University of California, which was in California in the uh, late 1880s, which, which was a case which uh, related to... Uh, Moore was someone who was... Um, treated at the uh, medical center of UCLA in the late 1970s for he had an unusual uh, kind of leukemia and he had a diseased spleen removed as part of his treatment. Um, And he was recalled on various occasions to to the medical center uh, for tests involving the extraction of various body body substances, uh, blood, skin, bone marrow and so on. And unknown to him, those tests weren't actually follow-up tests to make sure that he was, uh, you know, recovering well from his operation. Unknown to him, the, the unusual components of his blood cells uh, were of considerable commercial value, um, and the doctor and the, associate, the associated researcher were establishing a cell line from these, which, which then uh, would be then enormously useful for both research and diagnosis. Uh, the possible commercial value of that cell line has been estimated, and I suspect, but you know, how would I know that this is a rather wild estimate? But it's been estimated at $3 billion, right? So this is very big money we're talking about. Uh, in 1981, the university applied for and was granted a patent listing the doctor and the researcher as inventors, and then lucrative contracts were negotiated with, uh, with large pharmaceutical companies. Moore eventually found out about this. And when he challenged this, he challenged this partly on the grounds that he continued to own his body substances. He owned his cells after they had been removed from his body. Uh, He lost the case. Um, Now, I think the court, when you read its judgment, it reached its decision um, largely on the grounds, largely on the rather pragmatic grounds, that if you started allowing people ownership of their body and body substances in this way, uh, that it would seriously impede scientific research and that therefore we couldn't possibly do it. But there was also a kind of sense that there was something kind of um, unsavoury about this man trying to claim property in his body, like one of the judges rather critically described Moore's claim as a request that the court, quote, regard the human vessel, the single most venerated and protected subject in any civilised society, as equal with the basest commercial commodity. Um, In thinking about that case, I mean, in effect, Moore lost to the might of the biotechnology industry and the supposed necessities of scientific research. And then he was additionally criticised for trying to turn his body into a commodity. And one critic, I mean, there are many critics of this case, one critic has argued that, quote, what undid Moore in this case was not an excess of commodification, but a dearth of it. Had he been able to exercise self-ownership, to go back to the opening comments from... Uh, Hilal Steiner, had he been able to exercise self-ownership in the form of property rights with a capacity to exercise rights of inclusion and exclusion, with a capacity to say what could and couldn't be done with his body substances that had been removed in the the medical centre, his autonomy would have been strongly augmented, not diminished. Now, I'm giving those three very different examples, and they're dealing with different aspects, obviously, of the body, bodily services, body parts. Um, bits of the, of the body that we currently use as live organs, bits of the body that are kind of, in a sense, uh, waste bits uh, you know, taken out during operations. They're very different examples, but what, what holds those three examples together is that they're all cases where people are making, in a sense, they're making a progressive argument for making, taking seriously the claim about property in the body. They're saying if we took more seriously the claim about the bodies being ours, right, and belonging to us, then we'd be in a better position to establish, um, or if we or took more seriously the, the idea that bodies, body parts could be treated as like material resources, other material resources, we'd be in a better position to achieve, you know, protect ourselves against, you know, you know big business, uh, create more equality... Um, and so on. So basically, what, what are we to make of all this? Uh, is there something about the body that makes it particularly inappropriate to apply to it the language of property, commodities and things? Uh, can we say that we own our bodies in roughly the same way in, w- is, in which we might claim to own a, a car or a house? Uh, or should we regard the notion of my body? I mean, obviously we talk, and we will always continue to talk about my body. But should we regard the notion of my body as perhaps closer to the notion of my child, where you know you use the possessive pronoun, but you don't literally mean that you own—you um, don't literally mean that you own the child, um, and you certainly don't mean you have the right to sell it. Um, so should we see the body as different, really, um, or is thinking the body special? a kind of sentimentalism that blocks clear thinking about matters such as prostitution, surrogate motherhood, or the sale of spare kidneys. And then I I have a related question, which is is really about whether there's something about feminism that makes it, or should make it, particularly resistant to applying the language of property and things to the body. Uh, I mean, I've mentioned the critique of objectification, As an important and recurrent element in feminist thought. Uh, But it's also the case that an understanding of people as embodied selves um, has been a very important and recurrent feature of feminist thinking. Feminists tend to stress the fact that people live their lives and experience their subjectivity through their bodies. Um, They often argue, for example, that it matters whether the you know, the abstract and generic individual that tends to be the, uh, uh, the sort of the object of so much social science analysis. It matters whether that abstract individual is actually male or female. It makes a difference to what happens. Uh, feminists also often challenge the dualisms that oppose mind to body or reason to emotion uh, as if these were separable or distinct. So there's a kind of there's a, there's a kind of important strand within feminist thinking which is um, uh, very much insistent on needing to think about ourselves as embodied selves, seeing the body not as something separate from the self, but as, as very much um, uh, you know, very much uh, in the way in which we live. So, so there's a question there about whether that focus on the body and ourselves as embodied selves means feminists should be particularly resistant to, the idea, to ideas about owning our bodies or the commodification of bodily parts and services. Okay, so I'm just... This is, as always, it's taken me a long time just to set up the questions right, but basically what I want to say is two things. I mean, one is that I want to say... I want to say that feminism provides good arguments for rejecting a mind-body dualism that treats the body as separate from the self. You know, so the kind of dualism that treats the body as little more than a housing for the self. Uh, and that surely has something to say about how we should think about the notion of thinking of the body as property, thinking of the body as a thing. But the very arguments that feminists use might use against that, against that kind of mind-body dualism, can also make it difficult to draw a clear line uh, between legitimate and illegitimate uses of the body. And the second thing that I want to argue, which in a sense flows from the first, is that if you want to argue, as I do, against thinking of our relationship to our bodies and selves on a model of ownership and property, if you want to argue against that, it's hard to do that exclusively on the basis of the body being special or different. It seems to me you also have to have a critique of private property and the market. Or, I mean, to put it this way, you know, if you don't like the idea of selling your body, if you you have some kind of problems with that, it seems to me you can only get so far in your objections to that by arguments about the specialness of the body. I think you have to supplement those either by calling on religious objections, the kind of the body belongs to God, not to me, uh, or by a critique of the market. So... Uh, just to give you briefly uh, some of the argument for this. And, of course, inevitably, I'll do it so briefly that it won't be a sufficiently convincing argument, but at least it's a start. Uh, First, on the kind of the mind-body dualism part, those who think, uh, particularly in the debates about um, uh, markets in human organs, those who think that governments should relax their current prohibitions on commercial trade in human organs often adopt a kind of mind-body dualism. Um, I mean, I've mentioned that uh, Cecile Farber, in her argument, uh, explicitly assimilates bodies and body parts to other material resources, you know, encourages us to think of bodies and body parts as, you know, very much analogous to other material resources. Um, And though she doesn't sort of claim this as... She doesn't think that this is necessary to her argument. Uh, you know, she, she indicates that in her view, you could undergo a complete body transplant. Uh, and so long as you held on to your brain, which actually is part of your body, but never mind. So long as you held on to your brain, you would still be the same person. So, you know, I mean, she asks you to imagine, you know, that you've, there's been this terrible medical mix-up in which your brain got transplanted into... Uh, someone else's body, which would you think was the real you? Would it be the, the brain in this completely unfamiliar body, or would it be the familiar body with this completely unfamiliar brain? And it's probably true that most of us would opt for the kind of, you know, the bit that housed our kind of memories and our knowledges, uh, but I think, you know, just the, the kind of the fact that that might be our conclusion on that fantastic scenario doesn't necessarily settle things. Or another, um, uh, Julian uh, Savulescu. Uh, who also argues for a relaxation on the prohibitions on organ sales uh, sums up his view of the mind-body relation uh, like this quotes i believe we are different from and not identical with our body at least in the morally relevant sense our body is a complex machine that supports our conscious and subconscious life but it is our mental life which constitutes who we are not the machine that supports it i am my mind my body allows my mind to express itself and shapes who I am, but mind and body are different. And I think th- those kinds of notions, that, kind of, that sense of the sort of distinction you can make between mind and body is, is very often part, particularly of the arguments in relation to um, markets in, in body parts. Now, I think in common with many feminists, um, I find that kind of mind-body or self-body um, separation implausible. Um, I see us as embodied beings making our way through our lives and our relationships with others uh, in ways that are profoundly shaped by the experiences, but also by the assumptions and expectations that are attached to particular kinds of bodies. Um, As well, of course, by (coughs) practical differences between them. You know, is yours the kind of body that can get pregnant? Is your body especially strong, unusually short, especially prone to illness and so on? You know, these things matter. Um, I mean, it's been said that we, you know, we can get uh, a new heart, new lungs, new kidneys, new limbs, new corneas, and remain the same person. But it seems to me it's, it's unlikely that we could get a new skin colour or a different sex with, without any disruption to our sense of what kind of person we were. Um, and it's worth noting also that hand and face transplants have proved particularly traumatic to people um, because of the perception of the hand and face as particularly intimate expressions of who the person is. Um, We don't, I think, just have our bodies as if they're just these things that house the real me. Uh, In an important sense, we are them. But it seems to me that one of the things that that emphasis on the body does is actually confirm the point about all the services we uncontroversially sell involving the use of the body. Um, It is, that is one of the implications about thinking of the self as embodied, that you can't say some activities involve the body and others involve just the mind, right? I mean, it's kind of, you've already, in a sense, you've dissolved the possibility of being able to make that a very clear distinction. And this this is, of course, the important truth in the argument I referred to earlier about prostitution. You can't do any kind of work without dragging your body along with you. Um, And a ban on jobs that involve the body just doesn't make sense, Right. Uh, you also can't draw the line between activities in which the body is only incidental you know like you know giving a public lecture uh, and ones where it's the whole point like sex work uh, i mean you might think that, that that could be one way in which we could work out well you know what are the kind of legitimate and illegitimate ways of sort of you know selling something that involves the body but people often make their living from activities in which the body is central you know dancing uh, you know being a football player and so on uh, and we don't mostly regard that as a problem. You can't, I think, base the, the distinction on prohibitions on touch, say, well, it's okay to be selling your you know, services as long as there's no touching going on, because you know, if, that was what you, if, that, if you tried to use that as a distinction, that would rule out the physiotherapist as illegitimate, uh, while ruling in as entirely unproblematic, the surrogate mother, whose body, of course, need never be touched by the commissioning couple. You might say, and you know, I've thought at times that this looked a bit more plausible, that there's something about depth, right? That there's some way in which intrusions deep into our bodies are more troubling to our bodily integrity or our sense of ourselves than those that merely touch the surface. And I think that would fit with the, uh, the unease that most people feel about the prospect of, um, of live kidney sales, as compared with the kind of uh, relative indifference to discovering that some people have you know, sold bunches of their hair. Um, but in fact, the more I think about it, the more I, I also find that kind of depth no- notion unsatisfactory. I think partly because it, um, it suggests some kind of core essential deep self, you know, deep inside us, you know, which we have to protect, um, surrounded by a more contingent periphery. And yet, yet, you know, it seems to me that the sale of any service, any activity that we kind of, you know, charge money for, uh, requires the deployment of deep internal organs. You can't do anything without your heart or your lungs. Um, And if we think of which aspects of our bodies we regard as most closely bound up in our identities, we're more likely to specify faces which are surface than, say, kidneys which are deep inside. So I I also kind of think that the the notion of depth seems to me doesn't, doesn't... doesn't quite do it either. So what I'm saying there is that, you know, it's not very easy to point to what it is about the body that provides some kind of touchstone for separating out the limits of, um, you know, the limits of kind of, um, uh, uh, of marketization. So, I mean, just to reiterate, I mean, uh, the body is special, um, Attacks on bodily integrity are different in kind from attacks on the integrity of your house or your land, and they're mostly experienced as such. And I think also, however much one might try to think about one's body as a kind of material resource, or however much one might try to think of it as just the kind of housing of oneself, it's not actually easy to hold on to that notion of your body as an object. Um, I mean, if you think again of the examples of prostitution and surrogacy, I'm sorry to kind of put these two together because they're very different activities, but they are both bodily services for which money is charged. Both prostitution and surrogacy, they're they're sometimes described as a kind of renting out of the body for sexual or reproductive services. Um, And women involved in both of these sometimes report a process of distancing themselves from their body. You know, it's not really them, it's just their body that they're providing. But they also quite often talk of the difficulties of doing this. I mean, it's not actually easy to distance yourself um, from the process of having sex with an undesired and to you unattractive stranger, um, you know, or to be entirely unaffected if your client treats you without regard or respect. And in the case of surrogacy, um, it's not always so easy to distance yourself from the, from the experience of pregnancy and the feelings that might then develop in relation to the, uh, the baby when it's born. And I mean, I would say it's kind of at least partly in recognition of that, that current uh, surrogacy arrangements in in the UK, um, surrogacy contracts can't be enforced by law. And the surrogate mother is initially recognized as the mother of the baby, even when in most cases nowadays, she won't be genetically uh, related to the child. And she has, of course, entered into an agreement to deliver the baby to the commissioning couple. And I think, you know, part of that protection of the woman who is uh, bearing the, the child is, is a recognition that however much one might, in a sense, decide to regard your body as something that's distant from yourself, it's actually something that's very difficult to maintain. The body isn't an object. You know, It isn't analogous to a house or car. And even when we actively try to think of it in this way, it's not easy to maintain. So two things I'm saying there. The body is special, yes. Uh, But it doesn't provide the neat touchstone that we might hope for in working out what can and can't legitimately be sold. Uh, We can't just say the body is sacrosanct. I suppose that's kind of one of the things I want to say. We can't just say anything to do with the body is sacrosanct. Um, You can't just say we should never accept money for anything involving bodies uh, because the body is there in all sorts of things that we buy and sell. And this, I think, is where, in my view, you have to introduce... Additional points about what it means to have a market in bodies. It's not just about something about the nature of the body, it's, um, it's also about uh, the nature of markets. Um, and I think one of the points I'd one of the points I'd suggest here is that more so and more intrinsically than other markets, a market in body parts or body services depends on inequality. Uh, inequality is of course a feature of many markets and uh, markets generate and sustain all kinds of inequalities. But there's a kind of, there's a relatively benign story that you can tell about some markets, you know, as simply enabling specialisms, you know, I'm kind of good at one thing, you're good at another, if I specialize in the thing I'm good at and you specialize in the thing you're, you're good at and then we can kind of exchange our products and services and everyone else ends up much happier. It seems to me it's hard even to begin to tell that story about markets in bodily services or parts perhaps because we do all have bodies, so it's less plausible to imagine people specialising in bodies. Um, in a, I mean, if you, if you imagine, imagine a world of social and economic and gender equality, right? if you can do that leap of imagination. right? <laughs> if you imagine a world of, of, of social and economic and gender equality, I mean, why would anyone choose, out of all the possible activities that you might engage in, to become a kidney vendor? Why would that be your choice? Um, it's really hard to see what would propel you in those circumstances to sell. Though actually, I think it, it's, kind of, it's relatively easy to imagine that in those circumstances, many more people would actually choose to become kidney donors. Um, and I think similarly with, with bodily services, I mean, I think it's a, it's a reassuring fantasy to think that people choose to work in the sex trade because they particularly like sex. Um, And though some of the women who choose to become surrogate mothers uh, do talk of particularly enjoying uh, the experience of pregnancy, uh, they nearly all say they wouldn't do it except for either a relative or friend or for money. Um, I think markets in some other things could develop in conditions of total equality because of the benefits that we can hope to get from specializing in different trades it's quite hard to see how markets in body parts or services could arise, except where there's inequality. And, and I mean, the, the sort of the main point that I, I'm sort of making there, really, is that it's the, the kind of the... There's a connection between the kind of position the, that you might adopt on whether to leave it to the market to set the price for health care, for example, Um, or whether to leave it to the market to set the price for uh, university courses Um, and the kind of position that you might choose to adopt on whether to have markets in eggs or sperm or kidneys or various kinds of bodily services. Um, It's if if you have some sense that markets aren't right for everything that you're likely to have reached the view that it might not be right for body parts and body, uh, body products. So just to wrap up, um, I think at least since the abolition of slavery, so this is quite a recent development, but at least since the abolition of slavery, we have a tradition of not treating bodies as objects of possession and not thinking of them as things that can be sold. Now, I think some of the reasons for that lie in religious or perhaps rather sort of sentimental notions about women's sort of special relationship to their body. Um, that are now perhaps harder to defend. But even if those initial reasons no longer stand up to such close, cru- close scrutiny, they did their bit in preventing the full marketization of bodies and body parts. And it would, in my view, be unfortunate if some of the, the broadly progressive arguments that I outlined at the beginning of the talk, I mean, this is why it seems to me it's a, it's a complex and it's a difficult issue because some of the arguments that are currently being made for asserting stronger property rights in our bodies or for making claims about ownership in the body, some of those arguments are I mean, th- they, are, they are made as ways of protecting us against uh, various threats to our bodies right, um, so you know th- there are prove- progressive arguments that are being made um, but it seems to me it would be unfortunate if some of those tempted us towards the uh, universal application of the ownership model, model. Um, or what Margaret Radin has termed universal commodification. So I think it's... I mean, it's not just that the body is special, though, I mean, it is, but once you start thinking about bodies as kind of, in a sense, ever-present in everything we do, once you start thinking about us as embodied selves, the kind of... the specialness of the body attaches to so much that it, it, it kind of loses its capacity to act as a kind of clear marker between, well, that's legitimate and that's not legitimate. So... It's not just that the, bo- that the body is special, though it is, but I think it's also that abandoning bodies, as well as everything else, to the property model and market relations would be a, would be a, a pretty bad idea. So I'll, I'll leave it at that, and then Thank you. open to questions. <laughs>
0: Thank you very much, Anne. That was uh, absolutely fascinating. So we've got some time now for um, questions um, to Anne. There's quite a lot of people here, so um, could I remind you, if you're going to ask a question, keep it snappy so we can get as many people in as possible. Don't give another little lecture. So snappy questions. Um, Could you also uh, state your name and any affiliation and finally wait for the roving mic? Don't speak without it. So um, we have a mic over there. Uh, first of all, thank you. I'm absolutely delighted to hear somebody um, coming at this whole topic from the point of view of fem- feminism. <laughs> I'm also delighted, uh, I think, to hear you, along with Daniel Barenboin, talk about the abolition of slavery. Um, I think Joan Smith talked about the sex trafficking, which is increasing at a great rate and likely to with the Olympics. And I think that is the market driving bodies. In, in the sense in which people don't have the choice. For me, it would seem to be about morality. And if you, have, um, if you have finance and equality, then it's harder for people either to traffic you or subject your body. And most of this is underground. So that's... And, and feminism and language are two key ways of coming at that. Anyway, thank you. Your thought was wonderful. Thanks. I'm going to take more than one question and roll them up because I can see so many hands up. Though, yes, if you could... Um, I just um,
2: uh, two comments. Just I think there has been full marketization of body and body parts, but it's with regard to animals. So animals' right. bodies have been yes. fully uh, marketed. So I just wonder what, what your thoughts on that. And also um, the second thing about whether or not the boundaries of our bodies are really clearly demarcated. So a professor of mine said that actually we only have autonomous control of 10% of our bodies because friendly bacteria and things, 90% we haven't got any control over, so and also, am I now penetrating 200 people with my voice into your eardrums and things like that so I wonder about boundaries. Yeah, That's
0: great. And uh, one more question at the front um, and then
3: I'll... Hi, uh, I'm, I'm David King from Human Genetics Alert, it's a little a watchdog group and I've got a comment on the on the Moore case because uh, I actually have, have met John Moore a couple of times. But I just want to mention before that that um, uh, I'm also uh, working with uh, a group of feminists called No to Exploitation, uh, specifically on the issue of the HFEA's proposals uh, to possibly uh, increase the amount of money given to egg donors in the UK. And um, so if anybody wants to talk to me about that afterwards, please do. The thing about the, um, the Moore case... Is um, John Moore uh, initially got painted as this capitalist, you know, who just wanted to make money out of his body, um, but uh, as as he you know fought fought the cases uh, through the courts and was supported by a lot of <laughs> campaigners like myself, he he did towards the end of his life come to realise um, that actually the real injustice in the case is that. Um, there is a system of property ownership of the body which specifically favors corporations, i.e. patents. Um, there's a kind of exceptionalism, exceptionalism there to the general rule against ownership of the body which favors corporations. Well, that's capitalism for you, isn't it? Um, but uh, John Moore himself certainly, uh, uh, over time, came to realize that uh, you know, he, he, he abandoned his initial position.
1: Okay, um. Okay, fine. Um, I, I, can I just start? I'll start with the, with the Moore case, because my memory's so bad, I shall have to struggle to get back to the earlier ones. But, um, I mean, one of the things that... Um, I suppose what, one of the things that's kind of striking about the Moore case, and there are, there are lots of other cases where enormous sums of money are made out of various kinds of, you know, body products which are collected from ordinary um, patients. And, so, and some of those body products, in Moore's case, it, he had the, you know, this very unusual kind of condition which meant that you know, it was, had extraordinary commercial value. Uh, similar, uh, The other obvious example would be Henrietta Lacks, who was the source of the, uh, the Heller uh, cell line. Um, it seems to me you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to say, and you'd want the somewhat deep unfairness in it, deep unfairness in the idea that the companies make this extraordinary amount of money and the person whose body has kind of enabled this gets nothing from it, but it seems to me that the, the unfairness, and I think this kind of fits with what you're saying about the way in which John Moore also kind of changed his position I mean the unfairness is, is in a sense it's not that John Moore who happened to be in this extraordinary position of having incredibly worthwhile kind of, you know, sort of, sort of qualities of his blood uh, should have been a multimillionaire, whereas kind of, uh, you know, Joe Smith, whose, you know, blood cells, like most people's, are pretty worthless, should get nothing. Um, there's the kind of, it's, it's not that we necessarily think that the person whose body just by complete chance luck of, the, luck of the draw happens to be of some extraordinary value should therefore get 10% of the profits but th- there's some kind of unfairness in the way in which the companies can make such extraordinary sums of money whereas uh, the, the patients who, without whose work they could do nothing don't and I, I, myself I think there's a strong case for uh, some kind of notion of benefit sharing which, you know, which would... Uh, you know, redistribute some of those profits back to, uh, to the communities in the form of healthcare infrastructure. And it's, it's kind of and it's interesting that most of the people who make the, make the who defend, who, who argue that the more settled, the more judgement was so unfair they don't say well the unfairness is that more should have got 10% of the profits. I mean that's not really the line that people want to follow. So just, that, just some kind of Further thoughts on the on the Moore case. Um, working backwards on the um, uh, the question of sort of animals and uh, well, two questions: animals and uh, boundaries of bodies. I, I haven't really kind of um, got worked out uh, positions in relation to animals. But um, I, I mean, there's a similar kind of uh, there's a related debate about in what sense we uh, we can. I mean. The ways in which we can simply use animals as if they are material resources you know, of a non-living kind, but also the sense in which you can be said to own your pet. I mean, what does ownership of your pet actually mean? So there's a lot of kind of interesting issues there. And I, I kind of very much agree with you about the point about boundaries of bodies, because I think, I think that relates to my it's a kind of it's another angle on my own kind of unease about the idea that we could uh, that we can say well it's intrusions deep into our bodies that are the ones that are really problematic you know these are the ones we, we have the absolute right to kind of uh, you know to sort of es- we need to establish our property rights in order to control that but ones that are surface are irrelevant because the whole kind of sense of you know, depth, surface, boundaries. It, it seems actually more complicated than just your common sense idea of here's a body, and you know, there's its kind of uh, there's its surface. And then on the question, I mean, it, it's it's. I mean, it was it was more a comment about the the trafficking, but it just it just um, gives me an opportunity to just say something that I think might be um, relevant to some of these discussions. I think a lot of the um, a lot of the arguments. I mean, I'm thinking here more about arguments about. Um, the commodification of bodily services rather than the commodification of body parts, a lot of the arguments um, have focused around the question of whether uh, whether people are able to make free choices. Um, and, I mean, I, I take it that, you know, everyone would agree that anyone who is kind of coerced or is a minor uh, into uh, the sex trade, um, you know, that this is something that is, that is illegitimate. But I don't myself kind of... Um, I don't. I don't myself. Kind of. I. Th- I think that in the vast majority of, pe- of cases, people are choosing. I mean, not minors. Minors are clearly not choosing. Um, but it, you know, in the vast majority of cases, people are making a choice. They're making a choice from very limited range of circumstances, which you know, uh, and a lot of the choices that people have to make in the world today are within very limited range of circumstances. But the problem is not. You know that it wasn't their choice. It seems to me that the problem is something about the kind of the, the nature of a trade which depends on some kind of systemic inequality um, and and the difficulties associated with that. Um, so let just... Well, markets definitely have have an effect in further constraining choices, yes. I mean, markets sometimes open up choices and sometimes further constrain them. Yes, undoubtedly, yeah.
0: Okay, more questions. Um, One down
1: at the front there. Yeah, um, thanks for a really um,
4: thought-provoking lecture. My question, the question that I am um, left with is, all right, I mean, you've convinced me that it's not... I, I don't unproblematically own my body. So my question then is, who does? Ah, okay. And 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 I have I have two two possible. I mean, I just want to propose a couple of related points. One is that uh, presumably one can say that one owns one's body, but without having the right to alienate it or any part of it. And the second is, of course, that the, the discourse of property is quite and markets is is quite peculiar. I mean, it's it's, it's in in some way I think after. Th- for three decades of neoliberalism, we've all kind of assumed that markets and property mean something very definite. Whereas even after three decades of neoliberalism, we actually live in societies in which the right to property is heavily regulated. So that I may buy a piece of land anywhere, you know, in England or anywhere practically in the world, really. I mean, I can't do what I like with it. I can't put a waste dump on it. I can't put a nuclear power plant on it. I can't even put a shop on it if I wanted to. So, my point is that in that sense of heavily regulated property, there's already a model that you, you have brought. And then the problem becomes what's the nature of the regulation? right and the and the problem we have is that the nature of the regulation is either too male dominated or you know in favor of men say or, or or corporations in the case of this this uh more um or it's 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 heavily regulated uh, or rather when there is good regulation it's not properly enforced so
0: and could I remind you to say who you are and where you come from when you uh, ask a question? There's somebody there, and then there's. Could you get that microphone going over there, and we'll have a question at the back?
3: Uh, thank you. This is, uh, my name is Matthew Weir from Birkbeck College Law School. Um, I just wanted to ask one question, very brief, uh, according to Emily's brief. <laughs> Do you think this, uh, as you were working on the project, whether this is a theory of the body or a theory of property? That's it.
0: And uh, final question before we get thoughts, which is somewhere
5: over here. Is it right in the back? Right. Yeah. Um, hi, I'm Liz Paley, not from, not from UC, uh, LSE. Um, uh yeah. I don't really have an affiliation, I suppose. Um. That's fine. <laughs> That's okay. Sorry. Um, my question is whether the emphasis on money and selling creates a different sort of question. I mean, if you replace the idea of selling your body with trading your body, mm-hmm. um, that becomes sort of a more common thing that we maybe do every day. Like in a relationship, you trade the rights to your body to enjoy your body with somebody else with an emotional attachment with somebody, with the, the time that you spend with somebody that's a trade, um, and we do that all the time. Like you trade your body and your rights to your body and the rights to spend time with your body for other things. It's that idea of money that makes that people blanch at, really. And I'm wondering what you think about that.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Fine. Um, right. I, in relation to the the first, you know, if I don't own my body, who does it? But 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 then the kind of the question about whether <laughs> in a way, whether, given that property doesn't necessarily mean absolute rights to do whatever we like with, and that's kind of, you know, it no longer means that. It may, it may mean that in a, some kind of common sense understanding of property, but in reality, you know, it's, you know there, there are very few property rights which which are absolute anymore. And, I mean, this, is, this has been one of the issues that I've been kind of... Um, puzzling about quite a lot and, and maybe haven't completely resolved my position on because there's, there's quite a strong argument um, for people saying, well, y- property can be used very effectively to protect our personal rights. You know, as long as we recognise that in claiming property rights over ourselves and our bodies we're not claiming the absolute right to do whatever, cut it up, kind of sell and you know rent out and what have you, but we're, we're claiming some of the kind of property rights, then this is a better way of securing bodily integrity and all the things that matter to us um, than some of the other kind of rights that we claim. And I'm still resistant to that, and I think I'm resistant, and maybe this connects with, is it a theory of the body or a theory of property? I'm resistant because it still seems to me that thinking about the self and the body on a model of property to me is still problematic and I suppose it's partly that I think of property as something which is a way of asserting, um, I see it as a way of asserting rights against others, I see it as a way of kind of building walls which keep others out. There's a whole kind of discourse associated with the model of property which to me is, is a problematic metaphor. For thinking about what it is that matters to us about ourselves and bodily integrity, but I do think that the the issue that you raise about, given that just having property, it's not an all-or-nothing thing; that you can have property rights that are regulated and differentiated. That, to me, I I do think that's a kind of a challenging issue. And at the moment, I'm still, I still, my view is still that there's something about the nature of, of applying property to ourselves and our body that is, is just problematic, even if you can have that kind of more regulated one. But I do think that's a, that's a big issue. And, and that relates to the question, is it a theory of the body or is it a theory of property? Well, clearly it isn't a theory of property because it's not a very well-worked-out theory of property, nor is it a theory of the body because it's not a very well-worked-out theory of the body. But, but it is true that it, it's kind of shifted. I mean, I think, I think when I started thinking about it and my resistance to the application of the property model to the body... I think I did think that this was because there's something about the body that makes it really special, and, and I suppose what I've been trying to say in my talk today is I continue to think that, but it's kind of dissolved a bit, the specialness of the body has somewhat dissolved, and that maybe, and that's what's kind of led me to think that a lot of what I'm kind of thinking about is my reservations about models of particularly private property, um, and operations of markets and the body in relation to that, you know. So, um, so yeah. So it's 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 definitely a, a pertinent question. Um, and then on the kind of money and selling and uh, trading, I suppose. I mean, I I think we should be quite um, sceptical about the Id- about thinking of relationships in terms of a trade. And part of what I'm thinking of there is, I mean, if you think about the kind of the, um, the marriage contract, say, which you could, you could describe as a kind of, you know, you make, a, you make an agreement. You, you kind of, you know, you make a kind of, uh, I mean, yeah. You kind of exchange certain promises. Um, but I think the idea that you would be held to those promises or those contracts you know against the point at which it had become really distasteful to you mostly people now find problematic so it's a kind of funny sort of tr- the so, the kind of trade and i know what you what you're what you're referring to is a much more informal trade isn't it rather than the kind of you know the kind of full contractual stuff but i think the uh, the idea of thinking about the the ways in which we organize relationships in trade if trade implies some kind of in a sense you know binding commitment then I think that's also problematic, even though you're right, it's kind of it's separate from the the buying and selling side of it. I mean, it's, it's an important distinction to make, but I think that there are... I think there, there, are, there are sort of related problems on both both sides of that, uh, that distinction.
0: Great. Uh, I think we've got time for three more. There's one um, along there, just in front of you, yes. Hi. Um, I'm a PhD student from Sussex. Um, I was just thinking about what
4: we were... when. Uh, I'm agreeing with the notion that we would criticise the way inequality drives the sex industry for example you know so it's mostly poor people and women that are engaged in yeah. sex work but what I then struggle with is if we're saying that's problematic because people are kind of end up doing it how then do we treat other incredibly unpleasant physical jobs say like mining that yeah. right question at the front two questions at the front
1: yeah.
0: Wait for the mic. Could you say who you are as well? Sure. Uh,
6: my name is Rory Meekin. Um, all throughout the quite fascinating lecture, I've been confused as to whether the boundaries that you've been talking about are ones that are to be, uh, that you mean to be decided by uh, taboo or state force. Oh,
1: okay, yeah. Um, mm-hmm.
6: In terms of law and prison and police and all the rest of it. And I had another. Question: You said um, it's hard to argue that prostitutes choose their career because they like sex. Um, presumably because uh, they're in typically bad situations, and men tend to be more sexually active and more have a higher appetite than women. So that, what about that that's women? argument would be a problematic one. What, yes. Yes. What, about, what about rent boys and gigolos? Yeah, rent boys and gigolos. Yeah. Do, do, do they? I, I would imagine that, they would be, that, that it would be less of a situational thing for them than uh, your standard heterosexual woman prostitute. Yeah.
0: Great. There's, there's so many questions here, we'll take one more down here and then I'll, I'll take some more from the top and um, um, maybe roll up more than three if that's okay yeah, with yeah, you. Um, yes, um, um, my name op- is Sarah
2: Wajid and I'm a freelance journalist. Um, uh, I think I remember reading in The Economist recently an article about um, selling body parts and I don't remember all the details but briefly my question is based on the article so I explain it I think it was in Iran mm-hmm. yes, where the, yes. the, the it was deregulated the that and they legal. were saying yes. well look if, if the selling of body parts was deregulated internationally then this would end the shortage of um, kidney donors yeah. I think it was you know the shortage of finding kidneys so we should do it and superficially I found that quite a yeah. seductive argument and I wanted to know uh, yeah. you know mm-hmm. how you refute it and my second sort of question is that um, some of what you, you're saying, some of your argument, I sort of sounds to me a bit like I wish it weren't so. You know, we live in a, 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 a world that's ruled by markets, and I wish it weren't so. And therefore, I, I like to, you know, um, sel- save the body from this part. But I wish it weren't so isn't quite. It's, it's not. It's, it's not, not very not that powerful, powerful politics, yeah.
0: no. <laughs> and there are some hands up here. Uh, We'll get probably probably we'll be able to get you all in. I'm afraid we'll get as many as possible.
6: All right, uh, I'm Emmett. I'm doing a master's in cultural society. I just have a theoretical question. It seems to me that a lot of conceptions of private property, um, particularly in the West, come out of sort of a Rousseau uh, sort of mixing the body with
1: labor uh, and mixing it with the land, and that produces private property. Where the assumption is that the body is already inherently somehow your private property. So what is this idea that the body isn't private property or that it is sacrosanct? What are the implications of the theory of all private property that's sort of non-corporal?
0: Okay, there's another question
4: along there. Hi, uh, my name's Maeve. I'm doing a PhD in political theory at UCL. Um, I was wondering about um, how you can determine between legitimate and illegitimate uses of the body while markets do still exist. Um, You mentioned the argument from intrusion, but I'm not sure that that works because if you think about the contemporary feminist campaign against lap dancing, um, there's no intrusion involved in lap dancing and there's also not necessarily any touching. And It seems to me that the problem um, there is the sexual objectification of women in the context of gender inequality, but that's a very straightforward feminist argument. I think there's more of an issue there of the use of the body in a certain way. and possibly it's a sex, an issue of the sexual use of the body. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk more about that. Thanks.
0: Well, we're going to have one last question down here, and then I'm afraid I'm going to hand over to Anne to answer what's uh, a huge number of points that people have made. So, pass it across there. Um, hello, uh, my name is Simone Scofier. Um I'm from Chile, and uh, I'm studying a Master in Sociology here at LSC. Um, I would like to, um, you talked about um, how the body can be an object um, of the market and, and things like that. And um, I was thinking about what Marcel Mauss says about the gift. And uh, somehow I started thinking that maybe there is another way of thinking uh, how, the, uh, how a part of the body can be given, you know, like a gift. And uh, maybe that could be related with uh, I don't know what Freud says about <laughs> a child's poo. You know, um, he gives it you know as a gift to his mother. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> now for real. Okay, um, on that note, it's
1: hand. <laughs> okay, um, right. I mean, the the first the first point about. Um, uh, i mean if if you the the argument that there are lots of forms of labor that are deeply um, that are dangerous uh that are harmful to one's health that are perhaps degrading in various ways, and you know we've kind of we've tended to pick out uh working in the sex trade as the one that we're you know you know that we find offensive but somehow you know all kinds of other work which may be um uh, you know in many ways uh deeply problematic and I mean this I mean I think that's a kind of I mean that's an argument that you really have to think about right I mean it seems to me it's a very significant point to make it's not a point first of all it's not a point that would lead me to say oh well you know there are just so many bad things that go on in the world that you know you know we we should just stop talking about any of them Um, but it does mean that you need to sort of think quite kind of uh, quite carefully about what exactly it might be about a kind of buying and selling which involves intimate access to the body which is more which is which is distinct and it seems to me that you know i mean i, I should think it should be clear from what i've what i've said today that I'm kind of, in a sense, I'm going around in circles around this because the easiest answer to that is to say there's something about the body that, that makes the body, and particularly the sort of the uh, intimate access to the body, really problematic. And what I'm saying is that though I do think that there's a sense in which that's true, it's not a kind of powerful enough one to, to deal with the challenge of that question. Um, so. I mean, actually, I, I would partly want to kind of move it the other way and say that a lot of the arguments that people bring up in their critique of prostitution should additionally be applied to a lot of other forms of labor. And uh, in certainly among the, uh, the feminist political theorists who particularly influenced me in my thinking, Carol Pateman would be one who I think has very much made that kind of move. So, you know, so I would kind of uh, take the argument in, in that, that sort of way. Um, the question about um, uh, am I talking, well I I took the question as being am I talking about law or morality really Um, which slightly links to the the comment about am I just saying I wish it went so (laughs) Um, and I think think at the moment I mean I'm mainly working at the level of Why might we think that certain things are right and certain things are wrong? I mean, it seems to me it's very often a separate set of questions that you'd want to introduce about what kind of social or legal regulation is either appropriate or effective in terms of dealing with things that you think are particularly harmful or in some sense wrong. Um, and that seems to me a kind of separate sort of question, or, or one that often, you know, involves. There's a number of other steps that you need to get to in that, which is not to say I don't think we should deal with that question. We certainly should as well. But but really, at the moment, I think I'm much more working at the level of working out what it seems to me are the, um, you know, I mean, I am actually working out kind of questions about. Um, it's, it's more, the, more the normative questions about what is the basis on which you, you might say this is this is the kind of the appropriate limit, which I think you then have a separate set of questions about about law. The, the kind of, uh, um, I mean, I think the sex trade is not about sex, right? I mean, I mean, I would just you know don't don't think the sex trade is about sex in some very fundamental way. Um, the, the question about kidney donors, which I think slightly links to the uh, kidney donors and kidney sales, I, I think. I think first of all, I would say, um, okay, right. I mean, I mean, I mean. I suppose the, the main thing that I that I would say is the one that, that I already said, which is that I think that the uh, the buying and selling of something like a kidney is something that. You can only—it only makes sense in a context of really deep inequality. I mean, it's really hard to understand why anyone would, would sell a kidney, um, except in conditions of, of, of inequality. Though it's actually quite hard to—it's quite easy to see why somebody might give a, con, a, a kidney in conditions of, of equality and reciprocity. And one of the things that struck me is that if you, if you, if you, talk to someone who is a recipient of a live kidney. Um, donation. The, sort of, the, it seems to me one of the ways people talk about it is that they're they're overwhelmed by the generosity of the donor, and they're not sure that they could have been so generous themselves if they'd been in the position of being the one with two good kidneys rather than failing kidneys. But they hope that they would have been right. So there's a real kind of moral reciprocity in in the kind of the donation relationship, which kind of I think connects with the gift question. In which people think, well you know if you 've done that for me in a sense it's kind of, it 's an obligation on me to think, would I have been willing to do the same for you with the kind of sales business you know basically the world divides into the into the vendors and the purchasers, and you know there is no way in which it involves any kind of obligation to think about, well, you know would I also sell a kidney i mean it, it just doesn 't end, and that to me is actually a very important distinction between the kind of the uh, the donation, which is clearly, you know, doesn't begin to meet the uh, the demand, um, and the purchasing, the buying and purchasing. The buying and purchasing, I think, is profoundly uh, based on, on that kind of inequality. Uh, I mean, in Iran, it does seem as though it has um, uh, met the need for um, <coughs> organ transplants, and clearly there's a huge shortage of organ transplants um, in uh, in most medical systems. My my own view is that in order to, I mean, my own other view, additional view, <laughs> is that, you know, I mean, in order to meet what I imagine will be an increasing demand for kidney transplants, um, you'd actually have to have, you know, increasing numbers of people willing to, um, you know, it, it's not that the operation itself, the transplant operation itself is, is so particularly dangerous, but of course one is... Running a risk in giving up the kind of the uh, the safety net of having an additional spare kidney, if in some future time you um, uh, you suffer kidney damage yourself. So, I, I mean, I I mean, I think that what's at risk in moving towards that kind of sales model, in terms of the kind of the abandonment of notions of moral. Uh, reciprocity to me is is actually a really important uh, consideration, and I think that I hope that kind of connects with the the gift relationship question um, and uh, the the legitimate illegitimate. I absolutely agree, and uh, I mean that, that that was the one of the points I made, but made it perhaps rather too quickly. I don't think the touching or the intrusion um, <coughs> provides the, um, uh, the the kind of the way of working out what is and isn't uh, a sort of you know sort of legitimate, illegitimate um, uh, sort of marketization of the body. Um, and I do think that the, kind of the notion of objectification has to remain a very important part of the, uh, of the argument. Um, and then just on the, on the final point about um, ways in which notions of um, uh, self-ownership could be understood or have been understood by some theorists of property as the grounding of property, I mean particularly in a kind of Lockean understanding I guess of uh, of property um, it, well I, I'm actually quite happy to see the theoretical basis of private property disturbed and disrupted I have no problem with that
0: <laughs> on that revolutionary note um, I'd like to thank all of you for coming uh, to this evening um, there's a reception in the Gender Institute which is on the fifth floor of Columbia House on Aldwych, you need a Swipe thing to get in from the LSC, but I'm sh- sure there'll be many people making their way over there. But finally, could we all thank Anne for a really illuminating and uh, fascinating?